Garden Church podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Sunday mornings we come Okay, last announcement. It's uh, 
huge inherent leader needs. So all of this is happening next week. After the Sunday gathering, we are going to have a parent and leader youth group. Excuse me, let me read this. This is right here. A youth parent and leader meeting. That's what it's called. And it's happening next Sunday after church. And there is going to be um, lunch provided for all the parents to meet um, volunteer youth leaders that are serving the youth. Our youth group is growing. And if you're interested in getting involved, uh, this is a great time to come meet um, youth leaders. Also, as parents, you can ask the leaders questions and get to know them a little bit. We want to bridge that gap. What's going to happen here is we're going to discuss starting some um, mid-meet small groups for our youth. Um, just so you know, 92% of those kids that grow up in youth group do not have a faith after they turn 18 years old. 92% of anyone that grows up in the church and goes to youth group does not have a Christian faith by the time they're 18. We don't want that statistic to be real anymore. We want to fight it. So here at the garden, we want to disciple kids. And so you've got to hear about that. If you're a parent, we'd love to see you guys here next week at uh, right after the service for a free lunch to meet the youth. All right? We're good? Let's pray, and I'm going to invite Bill up here. Um, so Bill, why don't you come up? The rest of you, I just invite you to close your eyes. Jesus, we invite you into this time. We're already here. We're very present. But Lord, we just ask that you would come and make yourself known to us. May we create space for you um, to speak to us today through your word. Pray for the message that Bill has prepared, that it would be, um, it would be a timely word for us, Jesus. So bless this time to honor you with our worship, with our words, and our hearts. In Jesus Christ, we pray. Amen. 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 I just had a uh, sense to start to head into the word this morning this season that some of us are really battling uh, distraction. Uh, and distraction for the most part is not about big things that draw our attention away. Most of the distractions that are disabling to us are the little things, the, the tiny things, uh, whether it's in, our, in a relationship or in, in worship. It, it, it won't be Things fall off the the, the the rails. It's or the wheels come off. It's more. Oh, why didn't you wear that today? Or <laughs> isn't that a little loud? Or how come the lights are? Or why this, that, or the other? Right. So that's in worship, and, it, and the same thing happens in in, in in a variety of other other little uh, other little things. How many know what I'm talking about? It, it's hardly ever the big stuff that serves as the little things, the little annoyances, the little losses that spoil the fight. And um, I found myself today distracted by lots of little things. And I want to just kind of pray into that for myself. Uh, and, and, and the reason is that what we want to talk about today is a big thing. And I don't want my own soul to be distracted by little things. Does that make sense? So can you just sit with me for just a minute and, and let's kind of bring ourselves to focus uh, in, in what Jesus might want to do. Lord, if we just take a second here to begin this word. Um, I really think that what you're saying to me, to us, is a big deal. And so it's not surprising that this morning I found myself distracted by the temperature in the room, for crying out loud, by, by uh, things not going the way I think they should, by the 
remembrance of somebody who cut me off at the 405 this morning. It's ridiculous. Jesus, please help me. Help us. Um, just get back focused on what matters most. I don't know where this is coming from, but Lord, I just felt even this morning that somebody was distracted by their current situation in life vis-a-vis relationships. They're distracted by, by singleness. And, and have started down a rabbit trail of wonder. And, and God, I just pray that you help us to kind of get back centered and focused on what matters most. Uh, we need help with this. So please help us. Um, as Darren mentioned, we're, we're uh, beginning a series uh, in which we're going to kind of a thousand foot flyover of the Gospel of Mark and, uh, and, and Acts, uh, volumes one and two of, of uh, Luke's work. Um, as a result of that, we don't have the kind of time that I would love to be able to spend and Darren would love to be able to spend just sinking down deeply into these in smaller chunks. So we're going to, by necessity, just kind of highlight a couple of things and then try and sink into uh, things that seem appropriate for where we're at in community this morning. So if you've got Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 3, Luke chapter 3, and we'll begin. I'm going to snapshot a couple of things at the beginning, not because, again, they're unimportant, but because they, they, Luke uses them very deliberately. So we're going to read a chunk of scripture and then focus in more explicitly on, on a couple of paragraphs. So in Luke chapter 3, verses 1 through 7, uh, Luke begins his narrative with this statement. Uh, in, the, uh, ah, there we are. in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius Caesar and the ellipsis gods, I mean, there's a whole bunch more that's really important to Luke and should be important to us, but that we don't have time to deal with. Um, so we're gonna, I'm going to come back and deal with that in just a second. Uh, but what Luke, by the way, let me just do this here instead of doing this other thing. Sorry. Read, read, read. Okay. Um, what Luke is trying to do, as I mentioned, as we mentioned before at the beginning of this book, is snapshot for his sponsor Tiberius and through him those who would read his gospel. What in the world this message of the, of the coming of Christ is about. And so every opportunity he gets, Luke wants to anchor the story of Jesus in historical fact and reality. He is attempting to give not a chronological, but a logical demonstration of the life of Jesus. So he's not so much interested in simply giving us the details of Jesus' life in sequential order, as much as he is in anchoring the story of Jesus in time and place and history so that it has meaning beyond time, place, and history. So the way that he does that is in a typical Greek fashion. Luke's Greek, of the four Gospels, Luke's Greek is the best, and it is almost classical in its structure and style. So he uses a, a, a structural method of anchoring the story of Jesus in time and place this way. And you'll notice if you have Bibles that he goes through a whole series of things and, and anchors Jesus within history and political reality, but also religious reality, because he talks about the chief priests and so on and so forth. So that's what that snapshot in the 15th year of the reign of Tiberius, that puts us 
somewhere in the vicinity of what we would now look back and say this is 28, 29, 30 AD, somewhere in that frame of reference, all right, that Jesus, uh, if the story of Jesus comes in. The word of God then came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the desert. He went into all the country around the Jordan, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. John is the last and greatest prophet of the Old Testament era. And this is, in a nutshell, the content of John's message. It's written in the words of Isaiah the prophet, where he says, A voice of one who calls in the desert, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him, every valley will be filled in, every mountain and hill made low, the crooked road shall become straight, the rough road ways be smooth, and all mankind will see God's salvation. So in a nutshell... This is John the Baptist, uh, the last and greatest prophet of the Old Testament. This is his way of preparing the way for the coming of Messiah. And then, he go, then Luke goes on and said, John said to the crowds then, coming out to be baptized, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. In other words, repentance is not just or even primarily a heart attitude. It is a hands and feet attitude and disposition. If repentance doesn't impact how you live, it's not repentance. So John says the best way to prepare for the coming of Messiah is not primarily in heart worship, it's hands and feet behavior. And then he goes, he gives three or four examples of I wish we had time to go in because he talks about how does a soldier in the Roman army prepare for the coming of Messiah? How does a business person prepare for the coming of Messiah? So, uh, Dan and I are we're just trying to figure out how do we how do we unpack this. I think I'm probably going to uh, blog on this this week, and if you have a way of connecting into that, that that'll be a way of exploring this because it's fascinating. Because basically, what John says is the best way to prepare for Messiah is to mind your own business. That is to do what is at hand for you to do in the ways that you already know to do it. Preparation for Messiah's coming, preparation for the age to come, is not some supernatural, extraordinary, uh, extraordinary spiritual extravaganza. It's about anchoring both your feet on the ground and paying attention to what is immediately at hand for you to do. That's what preparation looks like. It's not very sexy, <laughs> but it, it anchors us in the in the nature of our own lives. Does that, does that make sense? Uh, it's not some, we would love for it to be some supernatural extravaganza, but it isn't. It's the same old song. So, for example, to the tax collector who comes to him, what does it mean for me to repent? Guess what John said? Don't take more than you're legally able to take. Wait, that's repentance? Yeah, that's what repentance looks like for tax collectors. For soldiers, what does repentance look like? <coughs> Do your job and do it well, and don't use the position that you've got to lord it over other people. <coughs> oh, 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 okay. In other words, it's not big flash stuff. It's ordinary, everyday. Mind your own business. Add the column of figures right the first time, and let it match the second time. Did you see? So that's what repentance looks like. That's what fruit looks like. Then he goes on and says, a lot of people. 
We're waiting expectant, expectantly, and we're all wondering in their hearts if John might be the guy, the Christ. John answered them and said, No, I baptize you with water, but one more powerful than I uh, will come, power being a major theme throughout the Gospel of Luke, uh, one more powerful than I will come, the thongs of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie, and he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. So John is making very clear, I'm not the Messiah, my job is to prepare the way for Messiah, my role to him is I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes. So John has a very clear self-understanding, which, by the way, is what makes him effective in the ministry that he performs. Same story for us. Yeah. So then he goes on and says, when all the people were then being baptized, and here now he begins to get into the story, Jesus was baptized too. As he was praying, the heavens were opened, and the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and a voice came from the heavens and said, You are my son, whom I love. With you I am well pleased. We're just going to stop for a second on this one. I just want to underline a couple of things that we'll come back and look at this. Jesus was baptized not for the purpose of repentance as if he had done something wrong. But as a way, he says in, in, in a parallel passage in Matthew, to fulfill righteousness. In other words, to do the right thing as a way of preparation, as a way of, 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 of focus. So the reason for Jesus' baptism, baptism to Luke is, is about preparing for the coming of the Spirit. And this then becomes the foundation that we want to come back to. When Jesus begins his ministry, it's important for us to notice that the very first thing that is the focus of the heart of God for him is that he knows who let me say that again. As Jesus begins his public ministry, he's now 30 years old. The last night, last week, we were snapshotted at an event at 12 years of age, completely silent now for these 18 years. What's been going on? He's been increasing in wisdom and stature, favor with God, with man. That's about it. He's been learning stonemasonry from his father. He's been a good elder son to, to his mother and brothers and sisters. But for all intents and purposes, nobody has been impressed with Jesus up to this point. He's lived an ordinary, normal life in a backwoods village in the middle of nowhere. It's not even on the way to anywhere. You have to be wanting to go to Nazareth to go to Nazareth, just like him. <laughs> don't, don't slur on him. You've got to be going there not on the way to anywhere. Uh, so that said, uh, when Jesus does baptize, now he's come from the far north. He's met John in the rivers of Jordan, his cousin, and has been baptized from him, by him. And the key for John, excuse me, for Luke, is this statement. The Holy Spirit, that, that empowering agency from God who is a personal being, Descends and, and the, the Greek here it reflects a resting on him in bodily form like a dove. You'll notice that Luke here does not say who sees this, but it is most important for him that Jesus hears this and recognizes this. A voice coming from the heavens saying, You are my son, whom I love, and with you I am well pleased. 
This is the foundation of the rest of Jesus' life in public ministry. Everything else will be anchored on this core understanding. If you forget this, Jesus, you will, if you forget who you are, the game's over. That's how important this is. So important is it that notice what John does next, or Luke does next. Jesus was about 30 years old when he began his ministry. He was the son, so it was thought, of Joseph, who was the son of Heli, and on and on through 77 names until we get to this. The son of Enoch, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. I wish, I wish, I wish I had time to unpack this genealogy for us. For us. Uh, for most of us, when we get to the genealogies, am I right? When we get to them, our eyes kind of place over. It's like, yeah, 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 It's like the adults in the Charlie Brown Christmas thing. But for, for Luke's audience, and for two-thirds world audience, that is, the two-thirds world that still believes the power of family, the non-Western culture, if I know those 77 names in this genealogy, I understand who Jesus is. It is arranged artistically, intricately, in some of the most powerful uh, statement of identity that you can imagine. I wish we had time to get into this if I have an opportunity. I'm, I'm trying to whet your appetite for doing some more research on this. But this list of 77 names divided into 11 sevens, seven being the operative number, means that Jesus is the beginning of a new seven, set of seven. He is the twelfth, he starts the twelfth cycle. In Jewish understanding, the twelfth cycle is the age of the end. So Jesus, by, by structuring it this way, one of the things that Luke is saying is that Jesus is the inaugurator, the beginner, that he, he inaugurates a new age. Which is, of course, the, the point, right? This is the age of the Spirit. This is the end of time. The clock is now ticking. We have one more set of sevens left for the end of the age. So this is partly what Luke is doing here. But the, he, he has done this in reverse order. You'll notice this, right? But he starts with Jesus and goes backwards rather than, for example, Matthew's version starts with Abraham and goes forward. Right? Luke does this very deliberately. Jesus is the beginning. But he wants us to end with something. He wants us to end with Adam. Who is what? The son of God. What has Jesus just heard in the waters of baptism? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. This is, in other words, the second Adam. What happened to the first Adam that we don't tell his story the way we tell the second Adam's story? Short answer? He forgot who he was. He forgot that he was a son of God. He got distracted by the very kinds of temptations that you and I are going to face. And that in... Seconds later, Jesus is going to face as a way of understanding himself. 
That's part of the reason I think that Luke is telling us this, giving us this genealogy. He is trying to make the point that, that those of us who are sons and daughters of Adam and Eve are likewise sons of God, that Jesus comes in the power of the Spirit to restore us to our own identity, and that when we forget who we are, having been distracted by the various temptations that come along, we will like what we, we get to choose, first Adam or second Adam. Who will we be most like? Will we remember who we are, or will we forget? Is, yeah? You with me? So, so here, Jesus now, full of the Spirit, verse 1 of the next chapter, returns from Jordan, led by the Spirit. That's a gentle word in English. In Greek, it has the idea of a driving force. He is driven by the Spirit into the desert, where for 40 days he was tempted by the devil. He ate nothing during those days, and at the end of them, he was hungry. At the end of them, he was hungry. Jesus was not hungry in the fasting. He was hungry at the end of the fast. During the fasting, he was doing what those of us who have been trained in fasting have done, and that is feasting on God. So he was not physically hungry. After the first two or three days, physical hunger becomes less of an issue for those trained in fasting. Fasting was for Jesus not a point of weakness, but a point of strength. The devil does not attack him at the point of his greatest weakness. He comes to him only at the place of his greatest strength. So fasting was for Jesus strength training. And we are invited into the same preparation in solitude and silence so that we don't forget who we are. This is a strategy. He says he was tempted by the devil at the 40 days. Peace here is very important. You're a Jewish listener of this text, and those of us who are disciples of Jesus, we've heard this language, perhaps for, this, this echoes the 40 years in the wilderness. Uh, for, the, for the people of Israel, the 40 days of Moses on the top of the mountain, uh, 40 days of Elijah in the encounter with God, this number, and, the, and it's less important that it be 40, 24 hour days, although in this case it is, is that we get the symbolism of 40 days being a long time. A long time. A time during which distractions occur. Right? So Jesus is in the desert for 40 days, he is being tempted by the devil once again. How did he get there? He was driven by the Spirit into the desert to be tempted by the devil. This is why he says to us, make sure you pray on a regular basis. Don't lead me to temptation. It's one of those prayers that God ignores. How many know what I'm talking about? <laughs> right? Because he will lead. Why does he lead us into the desert? So that we too can be tested. Now, is it a temptation or a test? Or it depends on how you respond. Right? Because that likewise is strength training. God doesn't tempt anybody. Where does the temptation come from? Not out there. Luke, John, James is very clear. Temptation comes from in here. We want stuff. 
Right. And until we have learned how to say no to the stuff we want, we're useless to God in helping him save the world. So that has to be tested. And especially notice what the test is comprised of. Uh, go ahead, Miguel. Sorry. Uh, so, the devil said to him, notice what is being tested here. If you are the son of God, tell this stone, you're hungry, tell this stone to become bread. Jesus answered, it is written, man does not live on bread alone. So the first temptation is a very important one. It's a, it's a matter of expedience. You're hungry, you have the power to turn stones into bread, so just do what you have the power to do because what? You're the Son of God. In other words, if you're the Son of God, prove it. This is one of the main temptations that people face when they're struggling with maintaining their grip on their identity. We want to prove it somehow. And we can, we, 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 when, when we're not, have you noticed this? When you're not sure who you are, you want desperately to put handles on identity. And we do it in a variety of ways. We do it with uh, sexual behaviors. We do it with, with uh, uh, performance at work. We do it with, uh, uh, we, we do it with money. We do it with possessions. What are we trying to do? We're trying to prove that we're somebody. Why? Because we don't believe we are. So Jesus sees through this. If I know who I am, I don't have to prove it. Not to me, because I know who I am, and not to you, who are my tempter. I'm not going to lose the grip on who I am by trying to prove it to you. Because here's the deal. If you have to prove your identity, you don't have a good grip on it. Does that make sense? And, 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 and we, we find this. You, you know, if I can just get the whatever the level is, then I will know that I'm somebody. And you get there and what you discover. Now you're just nobody, but you've got a new level. You still don't know who you are. Right? And the people you had to step on to get there don't know who you are either. So Jesus is saying, no, I, yes, I'm hungry. Yes, I have the power to turn stones into bread. No, I'm not going to do it as expedient. Just to prove to you that I know who I am. Why? Because I heard the voice from the heavens. It still echoes in my heart at least 40 days later. I'm not going to forget who I am just because I'm hungry, just because I have needs, just because it doesn't work. It's one of the huge temptations of our culture, right? Is to believe that if we are the sons and daughters of God, that we ought not have difficulty. Our marriages are go, ought to go perfectly. Our pregnancy should work out gloriously. Our jobs and promotions should just flow endlessly to us. Why? Because we're the sons and daughters of God, right? And there is a, a pernicious Christian heresy that suggests that that is a biblical model. It is not. Here is Jesus, who arguably is the paradigmatic Son of God, driven by the Holy Spirit into the desert to be tested, and the very first thing that gets tested is whether it works or not. 
is how God treats his children? Yep. In fact, this is how you know, perhaps, at times in your journey that you are one of the children of God. You find yourself in a desert without enough to eat alone. You feel the weight of the temptation. Anybody been there? Anybody there right now? And what's the test? What's the test? What's the test? Let the song sung by your father from the heavens echo louder in your voice, in your ears, in your hearing, than the song of temptation that you're hearing from the outside. So what does he say? And he doesn't even just he doesn't even say no. You notice this? He just said, it is written, man doesn't live by bread alone. In other words, Okay, so what if I turn it into bread? Now what? I will have eaten bread and forgotten who I am. That doesn't sound like a good deal to me. How do I live? Not by bread alone, but by the word that proceeds out of the mouth of the Father, specifically in his case, the word of affirmation. Then he goes on and says this. The devil leads him to a high place. He takes him into Jerusalem. Shows him in an instant all of the kingdoms of the world and says to him, I will give you all their authority and splendor for it has been given to me and I can give it to anyone I want it to. I want to. So, if you worship me, it will be yours. Jesus said, it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him. Only. So this temptation is... Uh, a, a, a different one. You'll notice that it doesn't begin with the statement, if you are the Son of God, that still is implicit, however, in it. Uh, and and Jesus and the, the devil here is, is, shows that he has capacity to quote scripture. He has the entire Bible memorized and can use it to his purposes. Anybody felt the weight of that at some point? Yeah? If you want to do something, there is a verse to support whatever it is you want to do. You just got to hunt for it. And he is a very present help in time of trouble when that occurs. Because he can suggest to you the verses that will justify whatever it is that you want to do. Can I get a witness? <laughs> you know? Okay. So anyway, so he leads him to this high place, shows him all the kings of the world, and says, I've been given uh, all of these kingdoms. I can give them to anything they want. How did he get them? By the way, is this true? It's true. You'll notice that Jesus does not argue against the truthfulness of what the devil is saying. It is true. And how did he get them? We gave them to him. In whose hands had God placed the kingdoms of this world? Into our hands. That's Genesis chapter 1. You're my image. Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth. It's yours. Take care of it for us. And what did we do with it? We forgot who we were. And traded our position for an apple pie. <laughs> That's what happens. That's what happens when we forget who we are. So, now you understand why that genealogy is there. That's how this verse became true. Because Adam forgot who he was as a son of God. He 
gave up his rights to the kingdoms of this world. And the enemy, the devil, has those rights. And says to Jesus, I've got a deal. It's kind of a back alley. Flash open the raincoat and there hang the Rolexes. <laughs> but it's a, it's a deal that Jesus, uh, had, he, had he not a grip on who he was, would have been tempted by. And that is this. You can get everything you came for. Why did Jesus come? To restore, to redeem, to bring back, to reconcile this entire world back to the Father. In other words, he came for all the kings of this world. So the devil's temptation is this. You can have everything you came for, but avoid the price you're going to have to pay to go away. In other words, the cross. So you can get everything you came for and avoid the pain of being who you are. Avoid the price of being the Son of God. Avoid the cost that you will have to pay to accomplish this. This is a deal. It's one time only. If you walk out of the showroom, I can't guarantee that it's going to be available to you tomorrow. Sign on the line now. <laughs> But wait, there's more. He's an expert, isn't he? Because none of us love him. Can I underline something, Bill? The more you run from pain, the more you run from yourself. You're built for the pain of your own identity. When you avoid the pain of being who you are, whether it's peer pressure or whether it's, it's uh, how you manage your financial resources or handle your singleness or your married life or how you make decisions, when you avoid the pain of being who you are as a child of God, you lose your grip on who you are as a child of God. And there will always, almost always, be a way to avoid pain in the moment. Is that true? Almost always there will be a shortcut. Almost always there will be another way home that doesn't go through the cross. Almost always. And the temptation is huge. The temptation is huge. Please notice, it's not because Jesus loved the cross. When we get to the end of it, he is as freaked out by the cross as you and I would have been. He doesn't want to die, and especially that way. Everybody okay with that? So this is a very real temptation. Just as in the first one, he was really hungry. It's just that like all of the temptations of the devil when it comes to identity, it's temporary. There's pain, no matter which road you take. You embrace pain now and become bigger than it. Or you avoid pain now and it continues to be bigger than you are. Pain either way. <coughs> right? And the sooner we can learn that, by the way, the sooner we move into an adult self-understanding. Right? The better off we're going to be for a longer period of time. Is that, is that fair to say? Because life sucks and then you die. Everybody okay with that? Uh, no. Right? See temptation number one. Right? It shouldn't suck. 
Well, if you embrace the reality that sometimes it just sucks, guess what? It doesn't. It's wonderful. There, there, there is a life that is available to those who embrace the pain of living that is simply not available to those who continually self-medicate out of pain. You can maintain the illusion of life without pain for a fairly limited period of time in the grand scheme of things. But sooner or later, it's going to catch up with you. And then you take big time. So Jesus' response, I just love this again. He doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't argue with the reality of what he's being promised. He just says, oh man, I'm so sorry, but there's a clause here in this deal that you're making me, that I, it's a fine print. That's what, you've got to read the fine print. It'll get you every time. That you're saying that I should worship you. And, 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 and because of who I am, I only worship one. Worship the Lord your God. Serve him. I'm so sorry. I really wish I could do this. I'm kind of stuck by who I am. Because I know who I am. Now this is important. Because the temptations to worship others that, that are not God around us all the time, huge. Peers, people that we don't even like very much, but whose opinion matters to us more than God's does. Right? I mean, how many of us get dressed in the morning for people who have no opinion about us at all, but we think they do? <laughs> you know, the clothes we wear, the car we, we, we buy, this. Even some of you even chose your school because it was prestigious from people who will never know who you are. And hopefully you get a good education out of that, but let's, let's be honest. All right, so, 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 and, and Jesus' pushback is very clear and obvious. Look, guys, if worship is reserved for God, and if you're going to maintain your identity, if you're going to maintain your grip on who you are, let's be very, very clear. Worshiping God is first button, first hole stone. If you get that right, if you get that first button in that first hole, there's a pretty good chance you'll be all right by the time you get through. But if you, if you start worshiping stuff that's not God, that second button first hole stuff, and you're going to end up wrong. No matter how well you button thereafter, something's going to be off. And that's what Jesus is responding back to. So now the devil comes back and brings him to Jerusalem and says to him, standing on the highest point of the temple, the tallest building in the city, if you are the Son of God, then throw yourself down from here. For it is written, and again, it's a text of God. He will command his angels concerning you to guard you carefully. They will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Isn't that a wonderful promise? Isn't that a wonderful promise? I've never seen the righteous forsaken or their seed begging for bread. He encamps his angels around those who fear him. Isn't that a wonderful
let's make God. Let's, 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 let's put God to the test here. If we're the Son of God, if He is familiarly related to us, if our identity is locked and loaded in Him, surely we should remember that. So let's just give it a shot. Throw yourself down off the deck. Let's see if the promise holds true. Do you feel the weight of that temptation? Let's make God prove it. Friends, we're signing checks all the time, forging God's signature, but then we get angry when they bounce. We're holding God to promises he never made to us. We're trying to publicly shame God into performing for us a lot of the lust for miracles fits into this category. Nothing wrong with miracles. Please don't get me wrong. Jesus knows how to do them. But he doesn't do them so that God has to prove who he is. He does them because he already knows who he is. We're invited into this same dynamic, this same reality, friends. We have to keep clear in our own thinking. Because notice Jesus' response again. Do not put the Lord your God to the test. Please notice he's not referring to himself. He's referring to his father. What kind of a relationship would it be between father and son is every time the son had a, had a moment of anxiety, he demanded the father to pull out the DNA test and prove again that he was his son. Friends, if you don't get it from the center of your being by faith, you will not get it by a conspiracy theory of DNA testing. <laughs> Does that make sense? I just thought through what I just said and I'm thinking. I'm not sure that helps. But anyway, um, but, you know, it's like, what is it? Because some of you have this, have this experience. Where, where the people you love, or maybe even yourself, the people you care for, maybe you think of like you said, you have God's honest proof of, like, of, of something that you don't believe because it still doesn't fit your feelings. It's, and, and, and we can we can we can laugh at the flat earthers and the UFO conspiracists and the Obama haters and the we we can. It's like, crazies are going to abound out there, folks. They're just going to abound. And there will always be stuff that fuels crazy. I think I stepped on somebody's toes. I apologize for that. Right. There will always be stuff that fuels crazy. Right? So if you don't have an anchor point right at the center in which you know without equivocation who you are, you will sooner or later get blown off course by something. So what's Jesus calling us to do? He's calling us to live the way he did, which is by faith. What is faith? Faith is standing in the reality that you know to be true, whether it works or not. 
It's not stupid. It's not blind. Faith has its eyes wide open. But faith stands in the reality. What's the reality that Jesus is standing in? This is my beloved son. That's the reality that anchored Jesus' soul and life. And he invites you to let it anchor your soul. Because if, if you have heard that voice, if that is true, your feelings will not always support what is true. You will not always feel like you are the child of God. Sometimes you will feel like you're the guy that got abandoned. You're the kid that got left behind sitting on the curb at the end of ball practice. You're going to feel like you have been forgotten. You're going to, and, and worse than that, who was it that drove you out into the desert in the first place? It was the Holy Spirit. Likewise, the Spirit of your Father drove you out into the desert. What's he doing to you? You know what he trust you? Alone? In the dark? When it doesn't work? Remember who you are. When the temptation is there to take the shortcut, when the temptation is there to, to prove to an audience that does not care Son. You 
you're hearing, no matter how that voice pushes back against your behavior, even as recently as last night, don't believe the lie that what you did last night disqualifies you from the love of the Father. It does not. That's a lie. Don't believe the lie. He knows who you are. You're his child. And not just his child. You are his beloved son. Beloved father. And what to me is most remarkable above it all. He's pleased with you. And instantly, the lies begin to flood. He doesn't know. He can't possibly. If only he was aware. Friends, he is aware. He is aware of what you did and of what you thought and of how you treated this person or how you were treated by this person. He's aware. You've got to choose whether you're going to believe what's true or believe a lie. That's the desert. That's the desert. The only way out of the desert, folks, is to believe what's true. It's the only way. If you keep believing lies, guess where you better get comfortable living? <laughs> better get used to the wasteland of lies that will tell you what is not true about you as long as you let them. And you are shameful. That you are a mistake. That you are unlovable. That what you have done has disqualified you from usefulness in the kingdom. Or in life. That the world would be better off if you weren't in it. That the cloud that you have been feeling is in fact the truth. That the darkness is more true than the light that is on us. That's the desert. And that's why you've got to believe what's true about you. Don't believe the lie of a professional liar. <coughs> believe the truth of the voice of one in whom there is no shadow even of turn. God cannot lie. So when he says of you who are in Christ as his disciples, that you are his son and his daughter, that he loves you, don't succumb to the temptation to prove it. Believe it and live out the center of it. When you hear his voice saying he is setting his love on you and is proud of you, he is pleased with you. Don't demand that he prove it. Live out of the center. And especially don't resist the pain of being who you are. Being in joy. Being in joy. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church Podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.